This Knowledge at Wharton podcast was produced in conjunction with the EY's Global Private Equity Center. For more information, please visit ey.com slash private equity. I want to welcome back to Knowledge at Wharton, Michael Rogers, EY's Global Deputy Private Equity Leader, and Steve Samet, who's a senior fellow and lecturer here at Wharton. Thanks both for joining us again and bringing your expertise on private equity to Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, Today, we're going to try to take a sweeping look at private equity worldwide by region. We want to look at recent performance and also the outlook ahead for each one of the regions. As a backdrop, I just think it's worth noting that uh, some of the big economic trends that affect private equity and all things economic and financial are worth just listing real quickly. Uh, I think there's the economic slowdown in China, which has led to falling uh, commodity prices. That's a big one. And obviously, that has hurt the countries that export the commodities. Uh, The rise in U.S. interest rates, although up only a quarter point as of December, they're talking about more rate increases. And the other is the drop in oil prices, uh, although they've recovered somewhat lately, obviously has had a big effect on exporters, but also on on countries that import, like India. It has actually helped India, which is a big net importer. So one last thing before we start, it's worth noting that some of the statistics we may talk about here from various EY reports may appear a bit dated, but actually they're not. And that's because given the nature of private equity, it can take quite a while to collect stats. Um, And so uh, in most cases, or if not all, the numbers will be the latest available. So Thanks again. And let's start, Steve, I'm going to ask you to just give a a very brief overview of the world before we get into the regions. Okay. Thank you, Steve. And hello again, Mike. Uh, That's a a tall order, but I'll try to be brief. Uh, I think the thing to bear in mind, most importantly, because among the things we're going to be talking about today are the level of commitments of financial institutions to this asset class. Uh, We have to bear in mind that that is uh, very heavily driven by the performance of public equities uh, in the sense that money managers at the funds have to balance their commitments to alternative assets, including private equity, uh, typically against uh, the overall uh, assets under management that they have. uh, And those tend to be very sensitive to publicly traded securities. At the moment, the stock markets are looking fairly robust, uh, and there's a lot of questions as to whether that is sustainable, given so many of the questions in the, in the world. I suspect that the pension fund managers and uh, their counterparts at other financial institutions uh, are being uh, somewhat cautious about what they're going to commit for fear that if public markets do drop, they're going to be overweighted in uh, private equity. Uh, but having said that, as, as an ultra-macro, uh, as, as you alluded to, uh, some interesting transitions in the Chinese economy uh, uh, and the stress uh, towards moving towards consumer uh, is something that will play out over a generation and especially over the next 10 years that happens to coincide with the life cycle of a private equity fund. Uh, India, India's reform measures seem to be taking hold. Uh, uh, there probably will be an influx of capital and certainly an increase in the number of transactions uh, there. Um, uh, I think uh, also 
aphasia uh, is, uh, uh, I, I think, looking fairly strongly uh, overall. That is probably the region that is going to be most sensitive to whether or not the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, uh, in the near future is, uh, uh, becomes reality because they may be the principal beneficiaries. And I think at a, from a macro point of view, I will defer to uh, Michael on uh, the issue of Latin America. Uh, before I do that, I would say with Africa, very robust activity. Uh, 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 perhaps uh, maybe a little overcommitment in the last two years uh, of new capital into the region. Uh, not that Africa cannot absorb it. It's just that uh, there may not be just enough evidence yet that the number of uh, bankable or fundable transactions are are there. Uh, but it is mat- it is materializing. Thank you, Steve. Mike, your your sweeping view, please. Yeah, hi, folks. It's certainly an interesting time, I think, for for private equity uh, around the world. And as Steve touched on, you know, certainly our our biggest uh, clients and the folks that we visit with around the world uh, look at the markets uh, very independently. And I think that if you go back a couple years ago, you might have you know kind of lumped a number of of different countries into the emerging markets bucket. Now I think people are very clear. As Steve just laid out, there's delineations between each market, and it's uh, you know it's quite different these days when people talk about Asia PAC or talk about uh, Africa or you know the uh, uh, Eastern Europe and Latin America. They're different markets completely, and then when you drill in uh, to each market, you get a a much different response in terms of uh, you know what's what's attractive inside Latin America, and we can drill into that a little bit. So I, I agree with Steve. I think there's a lot of dynamics in the market. Uh, the, the couple of years ago, I think everybody just sort of thought, look, the growth is going to be slow in the domestic, larger U.S. and uh, developed markets in, in Europe, and we have to go to emerging markets. And, uh, and, and that sort of has, uh, I don't want to say scaled back, but certainly the, taking a little bit of pressure off the gas, if you will, uh, in terms of, of the emerging markets, a little bit of a rebalancing back. Uh, to the domesticated markets uh, of uh, the developed markets in in the UK and GSA Germany and 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 also in the US, uh, but you know we still see an interest because of that long term growth uh, consumerism that's out there. Uh, some of those uh, themes are still in place and will be for a long time. So I think that um, you know that's that's sort of uh, the ongoing trends, although maybe a little slower uh, as growth has slowed, a little bit less interest uh, around the world. Thanks. Uh, I, let's just jump right into China, where the fundamentals remain. Uh, I mean, the economy seems to be growing faster than most developed markets, even though it's slowing down in general. Uh, but it still has that population, 1.3 billion, many of them entering the middle class. Uh, you know, these are sort of the, the, the fundamental growth drivers that uh, get talked about a lot. But with this slowdown, it has also caused havoc for many of its suppliers outside the country and at times for currency and equity markets. So it, it has become, um, it has become a, you know, a very big part of the world market. So let me ask how you would characterize the kinds of deals being done and the size over the last year or two, Mike. Well, I would start off by saying, as you just pointed out, that uh, I think the investment activity in China is off considerably so far this year. And I, you know, one of the statistics we look at pretty closely is the MPEA 
analysis that they do, and they thought that uh, total investment uh, was just about $1.5 billion in the first quarter. Uh, that's well off last year's pace of almost $12 billion. So uh, obviously sometimes these numbers can get bucketed based on size of deals and things that occur, but that's a pretty significant you know, uh, trend down for the first quarter anyway. Uh, valuations, though, continue to be relatively high, particularly for, for, for strong assets. So I think you know, we're, we're going to see uh, maybe a little bit more uh, picking and choosing, being a little bit more wise about how folks invest uh, and looking for situations where they can make operational improvement. I mean, that's, that's a big, big component here because uh, if you think that the Chinese economy will slow a little bit, and I think uh, most everyone assumes that it is uh, slowing and has been slowing from its uh, really ra- you know, rapid pace for the last 10 years, that you have to make sure you pick and choose uh, and you're doing the type of investments that, that make sense from a uh, long-term uh, sector trends. And, you know, one of the things that we continue to see from our, our clients and folks in the marketplace, uh, you know, again, focusing on that demographics, growth of the middle class, focus on telecom, consumer products, retail, education, travel, things of that nature as the, as the, as the uh, economy turns itself to more uh, consumer-driven as opposed to export-driven. And, and I think that, you know, just uh, I'll, I'll leave it to Steve to fill in some of the gaps on this uh, locally, because I know he spends a lot of time there. But I think that one thing that does concern folks uh, on the macro side is the amount of debt that's being accumulated and the pace at which the government is accumulating debt uh, and putting it into infrastructure product, uh, um, you know, properties and things of that nature. Uh, there's a lot of money that's, that's being spent to try and uh, keep the economy going. And so folks are watching with a, with a careful eye. I'd say uh, those trends still are there. A lot of consumers, uh, a lot of folks would like to have access to those consumers, but I think people are very conscious uh, about some of the macro issues there. Steve, your view on China overall? Hi, I, well, Mike. Mike has, has uh, summarized it, I think, uh, uh, quite appropriately. Uh, there was one sector he, he didn't mention, and that is healthcare, and that is consistent with the consumer theme. And I've seen a lot of interest and activity there, and it is going to be an area of tremendous growth, uh, especially when you look at the population pyramids of China and see how rapidly the overall population is aging. And this is a major social issue, and it creates interesting private equity opportunities. Uh, The debt, as Mike uh, has pointed out, is uh, really the case. Uh, And I wonder if that is behind the motivation for the uh, Chinese uh, central government to uh, liberalize the opportunity to invest private money into state-owned enterprises as a way perhaps of taking some of the pressure off of supporting those, uh, those industries and converting some debt into equity uh, for, them, for, the, for the owner, that being the, the, the Chinese government. Uh, it, it's an open question as to whether the liberalization of uh, the opportunity to invest in, I believe it's 150,000 or so state-owned enterprises, uh, will uh, uh, will usher in a new wave of private equity because it raises lots of questions. Uh, but it is it is an interesting transformation. Uh, so uh, uh, China China merits a very close eye. Um, uh, but the the MPA uh, Emerging Market Private Equity Association data that Mike alluded to, uh, you know, does in fact 
indicate a pretty significant drop-off, and that raised a lot of eyebrows at the MPEA uh, conference uh, this past May. So, uh, obviously, lots of uh, uncertainty around, obviously, that, you know, government decisions is still largely government-controlled economy, uh, the slowing economy, as, as we've talked about. Um, where do things stand now regarding IPO rules and, and, and overall, what, what do you expect to see over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, Steve? Uh, I think the, the IPO rules, uh, uh, I, I think, have been in transformation and currently uh, are, are making uh, a lot more sense for investors. Uh, but I think the activity in the IPO market now is less in response to the change in the rules and um, more in the process of healing um, and rebuilding confidence in the downturn that the market suffered uh, not quite a year ago. Uh, and uh, uh, so I think that those, those are factors. But in, in terms of, of, of rules, um, uh, shifting over to um, giving the uh, Chinese Security and Exchange Commission the exclusive purview, uh, which it formerly shared uh, with the um, uh, Central Government Planning Agency, uh, I think was a very good move, and it's going to remove a lot of ambiguity um, from the point of view of, uh, of investors. You know, and, and I just might add to uh, Steve's comments, I think we, we do see a trend where you know the IPO is the preferred exit uh, for a lot of business owners and private equity firms in the market. So the fluid and, and optimal operation of the IPO markets is critical, I think, to, to uh, the success of, of, uh, of China PE. And I might just add, maybe closing out uh, from this component, but you know, fundraising has, has also dropped uh, in the first quarter. It was Seven firms raised only two billion dollars, but the interesting component is that there's there's almost sixty billion of dry powder that's sort of targeted for China. So what that means is I think people are focusing on deployment and they're going to be trying to find deals. Uh, there's so there's a lot of pent up money that is eager. So all the things we might say that you know maybe China's slowing or they've got some challenges, there's still an awful lot of money that's eager to get invested in China. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Okay, let's move on to Southeast Asia. We heard a little bit from Steve about that. It sounded very uh, bullish and positive on it. Um, I'll note that the value of PE deals in Southeast Asia dropped 11% in 2015, below the previous year. Uh, Some of the most popular deals involved early-stage tech companies. That's a data point. Uh, One factor for the drop, of course, was the slowdown in China, which we've mentioned then the slump in commodity prices, and also some currency devaluations. Uh, those factors in particular put a lot of deals on hold, as I understand it. Um, but uh, according to EY reports, the pipeline remains pretty strong. So let me ask, uh, Mike, what do you see happening there in the next 18 months to two years? Yeah, I think Southeast Asia is interesting. It's in, in some ways... Uh, and Steve would know a lot about this. I think it's it's repositioning itself or positioning itself uh, against you know the the big uh, economic impact that that China has. But there's uh, obviously a significant number of people. They are growing in the middle class uh, quite quickly. And and I think while some of the numbers show some softness, uh, we actually think that the the second half we could get more activity over there. 
Um, the investor sentiment is probably as strong in the region as it has, as it has ever been. Uh, and, and really, that jumps out at you when you look at some of the fundraising statistics. And uh, bearing private equity, Asia just raised $4 billion in February. Um, uh, and, you know, that, that was a new record in terms of some of the size of some of the deals that were done. Uh, RRJ Capital raised four, you know, four or $5 billion. So these fo- fo- uh, firms are focused more broadly on the Southeast region, uh, Southeast Asia region. And, you know, the, the fundraising shows a lot of appetite in that marketplace. Uh, on, on top of, you know, Steve, you've touched on the, uh, the capital confidence barometer, some of the other measures that we use to kind of judge uh, interest and in activity in a market. Uh, and there's quite a, a significant upswing in corporate confidence in the region. Uh, was 60% of our respondents in our most recent survey uh, said they are working on four or more deals. Uh, and that, that's from the corporate market. So we see that if the corporates are quite active like that, PE oftentimes, you know, follows those trends. So we, we actually, um, you know, are, are you know, fairly bullish on uh, Southeast Asia right now as we move into the second half. Uh, Steve, I'd like to hear more from you about Southeast Asia, but I'm just wondering uh, specifically, um, does the lower, well, there's been a lot of devaluations in that region against the dollar, and I'm just wondering if that, I mean, that sounds like it would create more opportunities because suddenly your dollars can buy more in those. It's almost as if the companies were on sale a little bit. Is that a big factor? Uh, it's, it's one, one can say with confidence that currency volatility um, is uh, perceived as a very significant risk factor in emerging markets generally. And this does raise questions. Uh, uh, while there might be an interesting time window in which to invest because the currency may may work in, in everyone's favor, it sometimes can go the other way. And you cannot time the exits as precisely as you would like in this industry. Uh, uh, but but uh, it is clearly on everyone's radar. I don't know how much of a driver it is to the accumulation of, of capital. What is interesting is the size of the funds that have been raised. And if past is prologue, it would suggest that the interest is going to be more in larger transactions uh, than in, say, middle market uh, uh, transactions. Um, so it, it's there's an open question as to what swath uh, through the commercial economies uh, private equity is going to cut. Uh, over the next couple of years, and whether there'll be more diversification in the size of funds uh, going into Southeast Asia, but, but by and large, uh, you know, it is a, it is, as Mike has said, of you know, a, a very promising picture, and uh, the middle class is growing in each of these uh, countries. Uh, the same drivers that, that are classic in emerging markets uh, uh, play out in in uh, these markets as well. Uh, we're dealing with very well-educated workforces, uh, and uh, many of which are going to be the beneficiary of uh, some of the changes going on in China. So uh, uh, in terms of a venue for manufacture and export, uh, uh, the, the overall picture is pretty strong. And I remain you know, very bullish on healthcare in these regions as well. So, uh, if uh, if China were to slow significantly, let's say, 
to what extent uh, is Southeast Asia? Obviously, it's very dependent, and you know we've already seen that it's affected countries there. But what is their ability to to bounce back or find other markets or or you know you know sort of build themselves back up if China takes a fall? I I suspect that many of them, and because they are not commodity providers, you know, with some exceptions like Indonesia and and and, and coal. Um, uh, I, th- I think these economies have enough momentum and are independent enough of China, where there's there's not going to be uh, uh, a a downturn linked to China if if China slips a little further. So I think these can be seen as as independent uh, entities. Um, I have another very curious barometer, and will probably make Michael chuckle because uh, I don't think EY tracks this. But the uh, students from Southeast Asia who are enrolling in the private equity courses is actually on the rise, and uh, I often find that sometimes students um, uh, have a little bit better vision of what's in the offing than uh, 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 others. And uh, so that, that's one of my little, little private indicators that I'll share with you. Listeners can access past podcasts plus additional insights into private equity at our private equity website. And the address is kw.wharton.upenn.edu slash private hyphen equity. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.